I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. We're going to be Mark chapter 1, verse 29, so you can open your Bibles to that spot. Um, As we've seen already, the stuff that Jesus does, recorded in Mark, um, has lessons for us about who Jesus is. And that's part of what we're going to get here in Mark chapter 1. This stuff is like a really big deal. Like last week, we saw that Jesus cast out a demon with a word. And part of this is to prove the authority of who he is so that his teachings are are seen as authoritative as they properly are. Because he's bringing a new teaching with authority. That's what the the statement was. We talked about the fulfillment of the Old Testament and unveiling of the new covenant in his blood. That's like last week, we talked about that kind of stuff. This week, we're going to take some different detours as we go through. And this is what I promised to do in the Mark series. There's a couple like kind of detours, some theology detours, some apologetic detours. We're still going to go verse by verse through the text, but we will talk along with other things, Jesus healing, preaching, praying. We'll talk about that, but we'll talk a little bit about Catholicism, just a bit, not a whole lot, uh, that will relate to Catholicism. And we'll talk about uh, some liberal theology stuff that I think is a problem, how some liberal theologians say that Jesus... He contradicts the Old Testament. Like, he actually disagrees with the Old Testament in the Gospels. And I'm going to approach that because there's a verse that proves it wrong in the passage we're in today. And also, there's a liberal theological perspective that there is what's called the Messianic secret in Mark. And you've already got a taste of it as you've gone through Mark. And you see how Jesus tells this demon, like, ah, don't tell anyone about who I am. Like, that was the result of him silencing this demon. Or he's going to heal someone, we'll see, and he tells him, don't tell anybody. Okay, well, we're going to approach that as we go through the text and explain why. I'll, I'll show, you, show you the sort of liberal twisting of the text to challenge Orthodox Christianity and then give you the defense of it because I like that stuff. So Mark chapter 1, verse 29, it says here, And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So they're leaving the synagogue in Capernaum. That's the context. Still in Capernaum. They go to Simon and Andrew's house. James and John are there. Verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And this is where I think that, especially if if you were raised Catholic, you might kind of wonder at this, because you're like, wait a minute. Simon is Peter, right? That's the same guy, right? But he has a mother-in-law. What does that imply? He has a wife, He's married. Peter's married. Now, historically, the church has, I say the church, I mean pieces and individuals throughout the, in, in the church throughout history have gone through two sort of extremes on the topic of marriage. One is where they devalue marriage. And we see a lot of that in, uh, in Catholicism in particular, but in other traditions as well. And the other one is where we devalue singleness. First Corinthians 7 is like your chief passage for this topic, if you ever want to read it. Basically, they're both valued very highly in Scripture. Singleness and marriage, both very valuable for different things. And so if you're single, it's like awesome. There's benefits. It's better to be single in some ways um, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of serving the Lord, actually. But marriage also is elevated and valuable. And so there were those, however, who taught that, say, if you wanted to serve the Lord full-time, you know, be fully devoted to the service of God, you can't be married. And of course, this relates to Catholicism in one respect, because they teach that about the Pope and about the priests, right? These people, they can't be married. They're not supposed to be married, according to Roman Catholicism. But Peter, it turns out, was married. And there's even more support for this in 1 Corinthians 9.5. Now, this comes many years later, right? 1 Corinthians 9.5, where Paul is giving an explanation of how he has rights as an apostle. And he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is also Peter, Cephas, Simon, Peter, yeah, all those, same guy. And so he had a wife who actually traveled with him in his ministry after the resurrection of Christ. So this seems to potentially have some consequences with Catholicism. I'm not saying this to attack it, but just to evaluate the issue here. Um... Peter was the ultimate pope. He's supposed to be the example, according to Catholic teaching, that he was the ultimate pope, right? The ultimate, like, example of the popes. But if he continued in marriage, it seems to underscore the fact that the modern-day papacy has actually, is the result of the slow evolutionary process throughout history. It's not a result of just the text of Scripture and what Jesus established. And that's just the point I would bring out. It just doesn't fit Peter. Um, When you try to say modern-day pope and then look at Peter, you see so many differences, in role, in authority, 
and in the way that they actually live. And so this is one of those differences. Now, I looked up online because I like to, to try to find the people who would disagree with me and hear them out. I looked up some Catholic responses from Catholic apologists, what they would say. So I'm going to share this with you. This is from Catholic.com. Um, so it's Catholic Answers website is what it is. It's a well-known website that's kind of representative of Catholic apologetics, uh, popular level Catholic apologetics. And one of the things they'd say is, well, Peter was married, but his wife died before he was a disciple of Jesus. And that when you read about, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 9 in a minute, but when they say this, they're saying when you read about this in Mark, Peter's mother-in-law, well, the wife was already dead. They say the reason for this is she isn't mentioned in Mark chapter 1. And you'd expect her to be there performing some function. Mark chapter 1 just says the mother-in-law was sick and then Jesus healed her and then she starts serving the people. And you think, well, where is she? Where's, where's Peter's wife? Um, well, this is what you call an argument from silence. It's not really fair to assume that since someone's not mentioned, they must be dead. Especially in such a short account when probably the mother-in-law wouldn't have been mentioned unless she had been sick and healed. Like she's only even in the story because a miraculous healing took place in her life. Whoever else was there, we don't even know. And so um, she may have been taking care of the baby or she's helping, but more help is needed. And so the the mother-in-law helps as well when she gets better. It's just a bit much to assume that she's dead. So she may have been there helping all along or doing gardening or out at her sister's house. Like, I don't know. But the point is we can't really assume she's dead. Also, um, the second like rung of defending this, of saying that Peter was not married, which only some Catholic defenders will say that. They say that the term in 1 Corinthians 9, 5 actually refers to women who were not the wives of the apostles, but travel, they, they traveled with the apostles to help them in ministry. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, the, the term in the Greek, we translate, it's actually sister, and then there's a word that is translated women or wives. And so most translations put this as um, a believing wife, <clears throat> a wife who's a Christian. Meaning they're not going to travel along doing ministry with a wife who's going to be counter, countering and disagreeing with the, that ministry. Of course, that would be a problem. I think that then you, you, oftentimes an unequally yoked marriage means the spouse isn't able to do nearly as much ministry as a result. And that's just the sad reality of things. Now, they'll try to quote some Old Testament, uh, excuse me, Old Testament, some uh, ancient historical sources for this. <clears throat> for instance, in uh, Carl Keating's defense of the idea that Peter didn't have a wife at this time. And now, here, listen carefully, because what he quotes, and I'm going to share with you the actual historical quote. This is from Clement's um, Stromata, Book 3, Chapter 6. He quotes this guy, Clement of Alexandria. It was about 200 uh, AD, about that time. He quotes him, and Carl Keating says what he learns from Clement is, the women were not the wives of the apostles, but were female assistants who could enter the homes of women and could teach them there. So it's a mistranslation. They've just, you know, your translations are wrong. They didn't really have wives. But if we actually read what the Stromata says, you go look it up, book 3, chapter 6. Here's what it says. Have we not a right to take about uh, to take about with us a wife that is a sister like the other apostles? But the latter, in accordance with their particular ministry, devoted themselves to preaching without any distraction and took their wives with them, not as women with whom they had marriage relations, but as sisters, that they might be their fellow ministers in dealing with housewives. So Clement's actual position, not that he's the authority on these guys, right? He, like he's coming, he's born after all the apostles are dead. Right? He's not the authority on these things. But his actual position, if you, if you listen to that quote carefully, is they were the wives, but that they had some vow of celibacy during the time of their ministry together. Now, do we get that from the text? No, Clement's just adding stuff. Probably because that's just some of the cropping up of this anti-marriage stuff that we see in church history. And so they're thinking like, yeah, we, we can't, you know, we don't want to support that. And so they're trying to find ways to come against it. There are those, um, in fact, I'll, I'll say this, in one paragraph prior to this, uh, Clement had said that Peter actually had children. So he adds a, a tradition that's interesting about Peter having children. So the, the, the next thing is this translation of 1 Corinthians 9.5. Um, so the text says that, um, can't we take along with us a believing wife, a believing wife? And, you know, Carl Keating and some other Catholic apologists say, well, no, this is supposed to be translated um, believing sister, believing woman, excuse me, or a sister woman. 
which it just sounds weird, right? Like when you hear, would you imagine if you're reading the translation of a, a, a sister woman? You're like, which sisters aren't women? Like it, it doesn't really seem to make sense of the translation. So I surveyed a bunch of translations to see like, and you can do this on your own. You don't know Greek or Hebrew, fine. Just survey translations. And when you see that almost every translator agrees on a text, then there's probably not a controversial issue, right? I mean, they're looking for ways to translate something differently, legitimately, so they can have a reason to make another translation. And they leave it the same. I searched 18 translations before I could find one translation that didn't identify these women as wives, with that exact word, wives. 18 translations. And the one that I found was the Dewey Reams Bible, which if you're familiar with it, it's described as the translation of the Latin Vulgate, which means it's not a translation of the Greek. It's a translation of Latin, which came hundreds of years later. And it is, quote, one of the standard English Bible translations for Roman Catholics. Well, that's interesting and convenient, isn't it? I mean, this just seems like a setup to me. And I think that is the case. Um, in the Vulgate, it's Sororum Mulierum, which is the same translation as the Greek. It's a good translation. Sisters, like a sorority, right? You think of that word? And then Mulierum, or wives. Could also be translated as women. But because it's coupled with sisters, you would generally think of it as being a wife. Um, plus, it doesn't make sense that Paul was just affirming his right to have women travel with him. Is that really what he's writing around in Paul? He's like, darn it, it's not fair that I don't get to have any women who help me in ministry. Like, that doesn't seem to be the case. He talks about his fellow workers who are men and women in his various letters and greets them and all that sort of thing. Um, actually, Jerome itself, the guy that translated the Vulgate, he was opposed to marriage. He wrote a whole thing about how marriage is bad. He didn't get this from the Bible. This is his own opinion. But even him, in spite of his opinion and the things he said about, bad about marriage, he did not mess up the translation of the Vulgate. It still translates it, the fairest representation is, as they were believing wives. That's the idea. So in spite of his own personal opinions, he didn't violate the translation, <clears throat> which is the job of a good translator, I think. You know, set your opinion aside. Um, finally, there's another uh, case, which is this, that, okay, so Peter, he had a wife, um, but he left her. He left her when he followed Jesus, and they actually quote scripture to try to support it. You'll find this pretty interesting. In Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 19.27 and Luke um, 18.29, we get these passages where Peter talks about what he's left to follow Jesus. And they think, well, he left his wife. Let me read it to you. Matthew 19.27, then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? This is after Jesus says, if anyone's left, what brothers? And he mentions wives, right? If they left a wife. And so he's like, we left everything. So then they think that to mean Peter left everything on that list, which we'll find in a second isn't the case. Also, Luke 18, 29 through 30. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. That's, that's the context where Jesus is like, hey, this is what you've left. Well, Peter's like, hey, well, we left all and followed you. That, that's what he says in uh, one verse prior to Jesus saying this. We, we have left our own homes and followed you. But okay, here's the, here's the problem, and I'm going to point it out now just and move on to some other topics because I think this is worth addressing. But um, Luke 18 also says brethren. They left their brethren. And if we're to take that list from Jesus as all the things Peter left, then why is it that Peter is with Andrew, his brother, the whole time. They never left each other. So what did Peter actually leave? Well, if we look and read it again more carefully, one verse prior to Jesus saying, if you leave this and this and this, you'll have reward and all that. In Luke 18, 28, Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes. That he left his home. He traveled with Jesus. He left his home. We know he left his job. We read that earlier in Mark chapter 1. No reason to think he left his wife. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 seems to re reject that as well. Not only that, but the consistent teaching on marriage in the New Testament is that you do not leave your wife. I mean, this is kind of a big deal. You just don't. Even if they're unbelievers, you don't abandon them. Right? You don't just walk away and abandon your marriage. It's against the teachings of Jesus. It's Jesus, let, let what God has brought together, let, let not man separate. Except Peter, leave your wife. That's just silly. Not only that, but in 1 Corinthians 7, two chapters prior to 1 Corinthians 9, 5, 
Um, Paul indicates that it's actually immoral or wrong for a husband and wife to permanently refuse their bodies towards one another in that marital relationship, the physical relationship. It's wrong. And he says, if you want to do it, do it for a time, for fasting and prayer to seek the Lord. Do it by agreement where you're not, not one like withholding themselves from the other. Um, and so this is like a challenge in marriage just to make sure that you don't remove this beautiful intimacy. It's every marriage is attacked in that area at some, at some point in the marriage, of course. Anyway, moving forward, um, we'll, uh, we'll look now at verse 31. So Mark chapter 131. And he came to her, Jesus came to the mother-in-law of Peter and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she waited on them. So some things to notice about Jesus's miracles, like this one in particular, it's like a no frills miracle. You notice that? Like, it's not like, and then, and then Jesus, you know, took his coat off and wound it around his head seven times, right? While the band played and built up all the emotional momentum, you know? Um, No, it wasn't a crusade in that fashion from those kinds of people. He just takes her by the hand, her fever leaves her, she gets up and she starts serving them. And notice that she serves. It's just neat to know that she served. Like she got healed and she didn't like go on a speaking tour. She just got healed and then just started serving. You know, she just starts serving the people that are there. She just starts helping. And that'll be important in a second. You'll understand why. Um, He also touched her. That's another element. He touched her and she served. Keep these in mind because it it seems like the fever left her after she was touched and got up. He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her. Either Either it left her right at the same time or so close that they couldn't tell. So they just know he raised her up and the fever left her. It was like right at that same, about the same time. Normally in their culture, she's sick, she's unclean, you don't serve food to people. Right? This, is, this should be in every culture. Right? This should be, in, should be across all cultures. You know? Sometimes you're ordering your food and the guy's like, you know, and you're like, no. And you, you, just, you just don't eat those fries on that side of the thing. I don't know. But, but she serves them right away. But in their culture, it not only would have been, you know, like, oh, that's gross. It would have been, that's unclean. You're ill. You can't serve us. So in there, they, they knew she was healed and that any uncleanness that was associated with her illness was gone like that. And she was able to serve them food right away, which is pretty neat. Jesus, in other words, he makes people clean without himself being made unclean. Because what? He touched her. He touched her, it seems, while she was still sick. When he was done touching her, she was not sick. And he was not unclean and she was not unclean. And I think there's a picture there of the gospel. Verse 32, it says, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. Um, the whole city. This is what you call hyperbole. Now, I know for some of us, we're, you're thinking, especially if you read the text in a really kind of wooden way, I, I take it very plain-faced, you know, I, some would call me a literalist. I take all the literal things literal. And when it's a poem, I take it like a poem. Like, I just take it like it means it. The Bible means it. Um, but this is, hy- this is a hyperbole. So it doesn't mean like, well, if there was one old man stuck at home, then the scripture has failed. No. Um, yeah, the whole city gathered at the door. That's just naturally hyperbole there. Um, but, but obviously a ton of people came and they gathered at the door. Why? Well, this is the same place where he'd, he'd taught at the synagogue and he cast out a demon. And now he has brought a healing. And they gather at the door. But it's interesting when they gather. They don't gather when Jesus enters in and heals the mom. They gather after sunset. Why? Because it was the Sabbath. He taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He goes back to their house and they're eating and all this. And then, and then they have to wait until the evening when the Sabbath is over. Technically, the, the Jewish day ends at sundown. And so the Sabbath is over. So he's like, all right, let's get over there and see that guy. You know, he cast out demons to heal the sick. The rumors have spread. And so the, the city gathers around. Um, yeah. Notice, though, two categories of people here. All who were ill... And those who were demon-possessed. Two categories, not one. All who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. It's commonly misrepresented uh, that the Bible teaches that all illness is demonic possession. And that is not what scripture teaches. Nor does it suggest that no illness is a result of some demonic possession. It's, it's just the reality that both of these things are possible. There's illness that is demonic in nature and illness that's just illness. And so we have both categories being presented here. I just want to make that, uh, make that clear because it's another attack point 
for some people against the scriptures when they want to be like, oh, well, you're backwards, Bob. Well, they thought everything was demonic. We're like, well, no, but your problem is you think nothing is. Like there's just no awareness of spiritual realities going on in your life or those around you or even the awareness of God himself. Um, so yeah, both are true. Verse 34, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In other words, there just seems to be no limit to the power and authority that Jesus has. He killed, he healed many who were Ill, who were ill and cast out many demons. I don't know if he he healed every or or just many or we don't know the whole story here. Some people make a really big deal of the idea that Jesus healed every single person that he had access to physically um, who came near him or to him. And I, I don't think that seems to be the case in Scripture, but he generally did heal. It seems. But the ill, they come to him. And he would not let the demons speak. This is the second time this has happened. We noticed in Mark chapter 1 verse 24, Jesus is speaking. He's, gonna, he's dealing with this demon and the, the demon says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Now part of you could say, well, maybe he just said be quiet because he's just like, shut up, demon. And that's fully legit, in my opinion, yeah. I mean, what good is going to come out of the mouth of this of this demon? But here he does it again. And it tells us why. He would not permit them to speak because they knew who he was. So this isn't just because they're liars. This is because they know something that's true. It's interesting. And he would not permit them to speak. So the implication is they would make it known if he let them speak. So let that sit for a moment. I'm going to come back to it a little bit later today and we'll deal with explaining this. This comes back to that messianic secret thing that uh, some scholars have supposed. Um, Verse 35. So in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And Jesus does this a lot. He, he He just gets up and leaves. There's crowds. People are interested in him. It's still dark. It's early morning. And he takes off and he's alone. And he's just alone. And he's just praying. Sometimes you might say, well, he did this to get away from the crowds. Um, so they wouldn't try to like take him too early to make a Messiah or something like that. But, but there seems to be more here. He just wanted to be alone. And it wasn't just alone because I'm depressed and I want to be alone. He went to be alone and pray and to seek the Lord in prayer. And I, I just wonder in our modern culture, how often are we really alone for a reason other than to be on our cell phone? Like, I just want to be alone so I can get on my cell phone. Like, I get the feeling. Like, I've been developing recently the habit of setting this thing down because it just seemed like it was unhealthy, you know? Especially with, I get all these notifications constantly. In fact, I should probably check a few right now. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we need to remember this, that there's a need, that Jesus saw a need for him to pray and to, to seek, you know, spiritual things all on his own. And Jesus was surrounded with needs. He was surrounded with tons of needs. I mean... Think about the needs and his ability to minister to those needs. And yet he goes off and he's alone. And, he, and if he wasn't alone, he could have been there helping somebody, teaching somebody, doing something for somebody. I think it's just a good word for us. You may feel busy. You may feel like you don't have time for it to just spend some time with the Lord alone every day. But maybe you need to. Maybe your priorities are a little bit off. And maybe you just need to be serious about it. Uh, because sometimes that's all it takes is the proper motivation. And the proper motivation sometimes is trials. Oh, my life is so rough right now, I am definitely finding the time for prayer. But you know, right now, life's not so bad. It's not so bad that I need to make time for prayer. And this is not the relationship God wants with us. Um, Jesus is giving us an example. We have to make real time for prayer. There was a time um, later on in Mark when they're unable to cast out a demon, and they're asked, they're asked why they can't cast this demon out. And Jesus tells them this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Jesus had no trouble casting him out. But he mentions it to them. Well, they weren't doing the same kind of prayer regimen he was doing. And that's just an interesting fact that I see in the text. And I see it in my own life and I see it as a constant reminder. Um, Make time. Make time for the Lord. Priorities. Sometimes prayer is hard. And I'll just encourage you with Colossians 4.12. Where it talks about Epaphras who was praying for the Colossians and it says that he always labors earnestly for you in his prayers. 
the, the truth about sometimes prayer is hard is that sometimes prayer is hard. So pray. And there's an element of it that's labor. Epaphras labors in prayer. And I, if I expect my prayer to be this rapturous moment where I'm sensing just the joy of the Lord at all times, um, then, then perhaps I have an odd expectation of prayer. I'm going to prayer for my personal experience and not going to prayer for spiritual commitment to God, for blessing to other people, to connect with the Lord and to lift up these concerns to him. So I think prayer should be a big priority for us. And Jesus exampled it for us, and that's kind of a big deal. Um, verse 36, it says, Simon and his companions searched for him. Uh, notice that Simon is the focus here. So they're traveling looking for Jesus now. He's, it's in, early in the morning. He left. They're like, where is he? Simon and his companions, we don't hear about Andrew, James, or John, just Simon and his companions, they search for Jesus. This could be an implication in Mark that, that Simon is a chief witness or source for his information, that, that, that Peter is behind Mark, as the pretty much unanimous church tradition says. Verse 37, they found him. And he said, and said to him, everyone's looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for this is what I came for. Everyone's looking and Jesus takes off. He's like, I'm done, at least for now. He's done here. He had a message. He gave it. He healed people to prove it, cast out demons. And now he's going to move on and minister to other people. And I think that there's a message here about the missional nature of Christianity and in our relationships even with people sometimes. Sometimes I pick one person and I'm just going to share with them until I die. Um, when maybe perhaps the Lord would have you share with more than one person. You know what I mean? Sometimes we, we, we don't realize like, but I already shared. I've already said everything I can think to say. I've already done everything I can think to do. Okay, how about you start with someone else as well? And Jesus, he, he was like, I'm going to give the message out. I'm going to move on, give it out again, move on, give it out again. And that was something he did consistently. And I think he encouraged the disciples to do it as well when he sends them out two by two. And he's like, hey, if they don't receive it, move on. Share it with somebody else. Seemed to be a good principle. Jesus' ministry, um, though, was focused on the Jews, as we see here. Um, he goes to the towns nearby. He stays in Israel for his entire ministry. And he's going to travel around and minister to them. He starts in Galilee. This may be connected to prophecy as well. And we see this in Mark, especially, the really strong focus on the Galilean ministry of Jesus or his ministry around in and around the area of Galilee. Um, his headquarters seems to be Capernaum. But he's going to travel around the whole area. And so we have um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This, is, this Galilee of the Gentiles is being called this in Isaiah because <clears throat> they were the first people carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. And so they were like often attacked, often, you know, exported, or at least in this occasion, Nebuchadnezzar exported them and then Gentiles end up living there. He calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. Even in the time of Jesus, there were some, many Gentiles living in that region, but it was still um, a Jewish place, basically. And that was Jesus' focus was to the Jews that were there. It's where Jesus starts his public ministry. He's the light that has dawned. And it's in Isaiah 9.1. And you're like, well, that's interesting. That's kind of messianic. It feels the light. Jesus is the light of the world. But as you read on in Isaiah, you, you come just a couple verses later to a very familiar passage, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us. This is the light. Isaiah 9.1 and 2 is talking about this child. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, ever uh, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So the idea is that this, this child that will be born that has these deity titles that's going to be forever reigning over the kingdom of David, it seems like his first light will shine in Galilee. And so Jesus is focusing his ministry there. Then in verse 39 of Mark chapter 1, <clears throat> And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. The idea here, verse 39 is giving us, that what we saw in Capernaum, everything we've read in Mark so far, about him teaching, demons, healing, da-da-da, it's a pattern of behavior Jesus reproduced in other towns. 
That's the idea. Jesus kept giving the same messages over and over again and doing the same kinds of works over and over again to convince these different crowds of people of who he truly was. A new teaching with authority, at the center of it is the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus so that you can be in God's kingdom. Then he would cast out demons or heal people to prove who he was, his authority. I think he focuses on synagogues. It's interesting how he focuses on synagogues in his teaching because this is the place where the word of God is proclaimed in a town, in a Jewish town. You want to hear the word of God in a Jewish town? You go to the synagogue. Well, Jesus is the word. (laughs) He comes and he proclaims who he is in fulfillment of the word. It's like this beautiful handoff. Like here's the synagogue. Well, here is the one for whom it was built. You know, and here he comes and he proclaims himself as the fulfillment. Pretty neat stuff. Um, To the Jew first though, and that's what we see him going to the synagogues. The Jew first, then after his ascension, uh, the gospel started going out to the Gentiles as well. Verse 40 verse 40, it says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And I just see the, 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 the confidence that this guy has about Jesus. He's heard the stories. He's heard some, there's, you know, whatever he's heard, he knows. He's like, Jesus can do this if he's willing. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. That's exciting. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Notice Jesus touched him again. Touching a leper. And then what Jesus does next is a little bit interesting. Maybe confusing. Immediately the leprosy left him. He was cleansed. Verse 43. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Uh, This phrase, say nothing to anyone, is grammatically identical to what is said to the women at the tomb in Mark 16. Say nothing to anyone. They were told, right, go tell Peter this, and then they were also told, say nothing to anyone. Well, how can these both be true? Well, the idea is that this leper, don't tell anybody, except the priest. You just run to the priest, tell him, show him, do the offering that he requires, but you're not going to go and tell everybody on your way there. That was the idea. Um, This guy doesn't do that. That's what the women do too. This is a frequently misunderstood passage. I'll get into it when we get to Mark 16 in detail. The women were told, tell Peter and don't tell anyone. (laughs) Well, it's not like the angel's confused. (laughs) They go on their way to tell Peter, don't tell everybody else. It was very dangerous. Jesus is alive. He could get you killed. Okay? And they were to run and just tell Peter and the disciples. Um, And they did. Otherwise, like, how did Mark know about it? Anyways. um, Silly objections. So the leprosy leaves him and he tells him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the guy goes out. He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. So four things stand out to me about this healing. One, Jesus touches this guy. Again, this is a leper. It's kind of a big deal. Maybe we don't get it in our culture. You don't touch a leper. And the holier you are, the less you are willing to do such a thing. And Jesus, he touches this guy. And not only is Jesus not made unclean, but the man is made clean. And this is what happens when Jesus touches all of our sin on the cross. It's just this, it, to me, these healings are like a parable of the cross. And he takes all of our guilt and all of our shame, yet he is sinless and he is righteous. And yet we walk out after being touched clean like him. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful. The second thing I notice is the are, if you are willing thing. This guy says, if you are willing. Now, many in the, in the I, I believe in healing. We're praying even today before the service, we're praying for healing. But there's many in like the, the sort of maybe hyper charismatic movement that say that you should never say, God, if it's your will. And I've heard some of the leaders in this movement say things like, you know, you can pray if you're willing, if you want, but I don't see God answering those kinds of prayers. And I just like, I just get like a nasty taste in my mouth when I hear stuff like that. Um, yeah. If you are willing and then God answers those prayers. Like I have a pretty good example of Jesus answering an if you are willing prayer right here in the text. 
there's nothing wrong with saying, God, I'm yielded to your will. I trust in whatever you want. And I realize that my plan or what I desire may not be part of your plan. It may not be part of your will. Maybe my healing or my whatever it is, isn't part of your plan and will. And because I love you and because I trust you, I want what you want. So if you are willing, and I think that's an honorable and beautiful and God-loving prayer to make. Say nobody gets healed that way. I say, well, you didn't read Mark. (laughs) Um, And the truth is eventually he will heal. He says yes to all of us eventually. And that healing is way better than what you've been asking for. And uh, I'm looking forward to that quite a lot. And you'll either, either find that a cliche or you'll find it incredible comfort depending on spiritually where you're at, I think. The main point, though, is, is that there, this guy had faith. He had faith. So the third thing I noticed about the, uh, this leper being healed is <clears throat> that he's told to say nothing to anyone. And this seems counterintuitive. You would think, you know, tell everyone. Isn't that the point, Jesus? To tell everybody. Show them all who you are. Um, and there's people who've noticed this theme in Mark and in other places as well where Jesus is, like, limiting the, the information about who he is to people at least publicly in some cases. And one of those is a scholar named Wilhelm Reed, however you pronounce his last name. He's a German guy. It's probably pronounced Reed or something like that. I don't know. It's W-R-E-D-E. Um, ready or not. 1901 is when he wrote his work where he talked about how Mark has a messianic secret. But listen to what he does with it. He observes some of the things that we're observing, right? But what does he do with it? He says that the reality is Jesus while he was on earth, never even claimed to be the Messiah. He didn't think he was Messiah. And that's why Mark has to try to explain away why nobody knew Jesus was the Messiah. So he has Jesus telling people, hey, I'm really the Messiah, but don't tell anyone. Because Mark is trying to, to stick it into history and the people around Mark will know the truth that Jesus didn't do that. So they have to have an explanation for it. This is actually a really bad theory for lots of reasons, um, for lots of reasons, but let me go with a couple of them. I'll share a few with you because while, while it's not popular, the messianic secret theory, at least his version of it is not popular in scholarship anymore. But what, what modern scholars I think do is they borrow pieces of it here and there, you know, so they have like their own version of it. So there's like a thousand versions of the same theory now. So one of the problems with it is it just butchers scripture. Um, Jesus did affirm himself as the Messiah in multiple places, including the Gospel of Mark, openly. In fact, as, as early as chapter 2, he declares himself as being the one who has authority to forgive sins. We'll get there soon. And they're, they're like, what, only God can forgive sins? And he's like, oh yes, I can forgive sins. And, and they're acting like, oh, it's this big secret. And that's not the case. It's more complicated than that. It, it, just, it just sort of flattens out the idea of what's actually going on in Mark when they say that. In Mark uh, chapter 10, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus, who loudly calls him, loudly yells it out, son of David, son of David. Now that's a messianic title, and all the Jews knew it at the time, even if some of us Gentiles don't get it, right? That is absolutely a messianic title. Jesus never tells him not to say anything. Why? Well, I'll theorize because he's later on in Mark, and he's about to get to chapter 11, where Jesus comes in in Mark 11 in the triumphal entry, and he's obviously declaring himself as the Messiah openly and publicly and, and, and for all to see. In Mark 14, Jesus plainly claims that he is the Messiah and he goes further and calls himself the Son of Man. And then by his, the words he uses in that sense, it's really neat when we get there, you'll be excited about it like I am. Um, Jesus is clearly declaring that he's divine. He's the divine Son of Man from Daniel 7. And so, uh, so yeah, that's all in Mark, right? This is, and this isn't secretive. This is quite public quite public. And we don't see Jesus, even in Mark, trying to keep everything so secret, but we do see him controlling some information to a degree. And we'll see us, we'll see the reason why in a minute. Now, the other gospels also record Jesus going through this stuff. I'll go through a little bit in John. Um, Some, like uh, Bart Ehrman says, this whole idea of secrecy around Jesus um, or him hiding certain details from certain people, that that's not in any other gospel except Mark. And that's absolutely not true. Um, the problem with a lot of what I read from, Bart Ehrman's a brilliant man, and he's a well-respected scholar by many, but when he talks about what, like his interpretation of the Bible is weird. It's just weird stuff. And you don't need a scholar, scholarly degree to just read the text and go, wait a minute, it's right there. And so we'll look at that. Uh, and John will be an example of where we have this kind of secrecy. It's not secrecy, that's not the right word for it, but this kind of 
information control that Jesus is using. Um, anyways, we'll, we'll move on here. Um, <clears throat> what's the result in uh, Mark chapter 1? The result of this man proclaiming to everyone that Jesus healed him, we can tell what Mark thought about this because we look at what happened. In Mark 1.45, it says, But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. The issue is unmanageable crowds. Jesus is dealing with an unmanageable crowd. And by the way, if Mark was trying to cover up the idea that nobody really knew these things about Jesus, why in the next verse did he say, and the guy told everyone anyways? This, this, it's a scholarly theory, but it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Um, <clears throat> there's more, though, about what Jesus did, like things like him telling parables so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear. Actually, I have a study on why God hardens hearts online. If you want to get into the details on that, that's all right there. That has to do with um, their, the hardness of their hearts and the judgment that he's bringing upon them for having rejected him. But, but there's more. In John chapter 7, and you want to flip there if you would, please, because I'm going to read several verses from this passage. <clears throat> we have another instance of a similar situation where Jesus is... It's not information control at this point, like it was perhaps with the guy, because it was about a crowd issue. This is a little different, though it's related. Jesus is rather controlling the crowd itself by controlling how he presents himself. And I'll explain here in John 7, 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Keep that in mind. They were seeking to kill him. And so he's being careful about where he goes. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples may may see your works, which you're doing. Note the sarcasm. They, they, they're like, you'll get killed. And we're just, we're just taunting you, basically. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See, they don't believe in him. And that's what it says here. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And these guys later became disciples. And James became one of the leaders in the early church. Why? Because he saw his brother alive from the dead. And turns out that's pretty convincing evidence. <laughs> um, Verse 6, so Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to go up and proclaim it. He just says it's not right now. It's not the right time. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Keep in mind, what people hated about Jesus wasn't his love. It was when he pointed out their sins. And what the world hates about Christianity is when we stand up and proclaim that they have sin issues. We can't stop doing it. Jesus didn't stop it either. Um, so when people are like, well, we, as Christians, we just have to be about love. We have to be about love. Stop telling people about their sin. And we're like, well, Jesus himself says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. <clears throat> I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he then, uh, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So Jesus did go up to the feast, but not at the beginning of the feast when everyone's looking for him. Not as an announcement of his presence to gather this massive crowd of people full of zeal, ready to grab him and make him Messiah, King, and all that. He just goes up secretly because he still has things to do, but it's not the time yet. In John 7.30, we read just a little further in the same text. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus, in other words, in controlling information or in controlling his, where he goes and when he goes there, he's controlling when he gets crucified. That's the idea. They're going to kill him and he's controlling when it happens. He'll slip out and they can't find him. And then finally, when the time is right, he, he allows for Judas to lead them right to him and he just waits there in the garden for them, right? When the time is right, he comes in the triumphal entry and he says, hey, here, here's me. I'm entering in on the donkey. They're proclaiming this, the Psalm 118, that I'm the son of David and all this stuff. And it's clearly, clearly a, a proclamation that he's Messiah. And shortly thereafter, he's crucified. In another passage, in John 6, verses 14 and 15, we see what happens when a crowd of Jews gets really excited about Jesus and who he is and who, who they think he is. John 6, 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he performed, they said, 
This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Again, he ditches them. And this time it's, this time it's a little different. Not because they're gonna, he's going to get killed, but because they're going to start a revolution in his name. And Jesus did not come to do that. Jesus came to die for their sins. He's going to make sure that his agenda is accomplished. And, he's, and he realizes that the Jewish people, some want to kill him, some want to make him king, and they're both misunderstanding his mission. And that's the thing in Mark. The thing in Mark is this. They think Messiah equals revolution, but Jesus is showing them Messiah equals Lamb of God. That he's going to come in his second coming with all that other stuff, and they couldn't get it out of their heads. Even the disciples, like, will you at this time establish your kingdom? Right? Because it was just so embedded in their understanding. The second coming to them was the first coming. And so they were looking for that. We're going to make him king. And Jesus makes sure that doesn't happen. The point is this. You will not understand Jesus until you understand his death and resurrection. This is key. And this is what we see in Mark. And this is what we see in Matthew. And this is what we see in Luke. And this is what we see in John. Is that the key to knowing who Jesus is, is his death and his resurrection. That's it. You've got you to understand everything he does through the context of those things. Um, or else you'll misunderstand it and you'll get these wrong messianic ideas. So it's about God's timing. Um, now, I think that that might be good enough to, to show that this whole like, oh, it's a messianic secret. Jesus never really thought he was the Messiah. All this kind of nonsense. Um, there's, other, there's lots of other evidence we could bring. 1 Corinthians 15 dates to anywhere from a few months to maybe, maybe at the outside seven years, um, the data in 1 Corinthians 15 from the time of the resurrection until it was written or it was uh, it was solidified because it's a, it's a it's a creed an early church creed like we read about the Nicene Creed this is like a first century church creed within 7 years probably maybe within 2 years and what does it say it says that Christ died for our sins this creed now why is that significant because um, there there the theory this messianic secret theory is going to suggest that Jesus didn't become Christ until his resurrection and that this is when Mark was written, maybe, and they take a late date for Mark, so they're talking 30 years later. 30 years later that there's people believing that Jesus, he became Christ at his resurrection. Not during his life, never claimed it, nothing. Yet all the Gospels refute that. And then when we get to this super early church creed, we get the idea that Jesus was already Christ when he was dying on the cross. And so anyway, these theories are um, dumb. And <laughs> but what happens is you have this brilliant man who, you know, makes this case and you're not familiar with the text in detail and he's pulling in select passages like the way a cult does to compile their bad doctrine and he pulls it from so just look at it in context read it in context and give yourself enough credit to be able to understand the bible and you should be all right okay finally finally there's this and i want to mention um another liberal theologian thing this we're going to end on this note odd note to end on liberal theologians and their bad teachings but this comes from, in particular, um, one guy named Brian Zond, who I've done some teaching on not too long ago. Um, he's a pastor in Missouri who um, became v- very... His theology changed in very weird, strange ways, and now he's trying to push that theology to everybody else. And uh, one of the things he thinks is that the Bible is in an internal disagreement with itself. The Bible's arguing with itself, right? And the sacrifices of the Old Testament are rejected, in particular, by Jesus. He rejects those things. He thinks those things are bad and we shouldn't have that. And one of the passages, the many, many passages that refutes this sort of bad theology of trying to pit Jesus against the Old Testament is the passage we just read in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, where he tells the man he healed, say, say, no, say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift, right, that is prescribed in the law of Moses. Well, that's from Leviticus. That gift was to bring two birds, One will be sacrificed, one will be set free. Jesus himself commanding a man to go and offer a sacrifice according to the Levitical law as a testimony to these priests. This just completely flips the script for someone like, say, Brian Zond, who's going to promote the idea that Jesus was opposed to sacrifice. But again, he's not reading the whole of scripture. He's not reading all of Jesus. He's just, just butchering, just butchering the text. And reinventing Jesus to fit uh, his version of, I think, pacifism, which is a whole other 
thing. So <clears throat> what's the point? My point is this. Um, you don't understand Jesus properly without the context of Scripture and without the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. Um, Jesus is not in disagreement with Leviticus. He's fulfilling it. Jesus is not going against the law of Moses. He's accomplishing it. And so we need, we need the whole Bible. And for those of you who you, you get confronted with these, um, you, and you'll see it, especially if you're online, you're going to see this stuff. And usually it's regurgitated stuff that's often way outdated and thoroughly debunked. But you don't know that because it's the first time you've ever heard it. But if you just stop and look at the verses in context, you can see the application. And the application is that they're just not interpreting the passages correctly most of the time. So often it's just check the passage, look at the context, and you have the answers to many of your questions. But as we, uh, as we look at this and we continue going through Mark, we're going to keep plowing through and approaching you know, theology, application, all those different things. I think for tonight, uh, a couple application things for us to really ponder and think about is Jesus' commitment to prayer and solitude. Um, not just solitude, but like prayer in solitude. And I, I don't know, maybe you want to say that you need to do it for three hours a day, um, and maybe that isn't going to happen. Um, but can you at least do something and have that as part of your daily life? I think that would be really a good idea, not something to guilt trip you about, but something to prioritize and, um, and to recognize the, the authority of the person of Christ. That's what we're getting in Mark. Jesus is Lord. That's the point. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the way that so often the Bible uh, will defend itself against many uh, misinterpretations and misapplications by just reading the text and letting your word speak for itself. Jesus, we don't want to miss the point and miss the message of the scripture, and so we recognize you are Lord. We recognize that you are the healer. We recognize that you are the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we trust in you. We rely upon you. And we rest in your promises for not only today, but for our eternal future. In Jesus' name, amen.